Canadian Family Health Counseling provides education and counseling services across Canada and beyond. Our holistic approach, called Neural Network Therapy, uses practical tools to boost mood, reduce anxiety, manage anger, break unwanted habits, and develop strong, healthy relationships. Sit back and relax while clinical director and founder Kim Sargent shares her insights and expertise on why emotional health matters. Welcome back to Emotional Health Matters. My name is Kim Sargent. I'm the clinical director of Canadian Family Health Counseling and founder of Neural Network Therapy. Today's episode is called When Counseling Harms and When It Heals. And the reason I pause there for any reason is that this is this is a bit of a difficult podcast to put out there because, of course, it's subject to lots of scrutiny. Harm is a is a pretty serious word to be using, but I think it's important to gather information about what you're up to out there. And I know that therapy has grown in popularity, and I think that's fantastic. I think that there are many, many skilled professionals um, that come from all walks of life. But just like not all doctors are made equal, not all therapists are made equal. And I don't mean so much really even the person. I mean, I think that it's important to really address some of what we know to be true in science. And this is what I want to do here today when we talk about how to differentiate between what might be harmful and what might be healing. So let's start with a bit of what we know to be true about the brain. And this is where I think that this is what we need to have a lot more information out there about. And I think it's happening. It's growing. People are taking a keen interest in the science behind what's going on in their brain, in brain health in general. I know that I'm tuned into it. So of course, I'm paying a lot of attention to hearing various professionals talk about brain health. But I do think that it's becoming more and more mainstream. And that's exciting because I think that that's where the, this conversation really needs to begin. And that's looking at a holistic approach. That's not separating the brain as this organ and it's over in its own little category. It's saying, you know, our physiology is all of us and our brain is the conductor of this symphony. And if our brain is not healthy and our body is not healthy, there's no chance that mental health is going to be at our disposal. My personality is such that as a young person, I think I really got a lot of juice out of you know, swimming upstream. And I don't know if that's something that was an acquired taste. I think it came pretty naturally to me. I love the story of me walking home from kindergarten because I wanted to see what was on with Mr. Dress Up as opposed to whatever silly game I thought was going on in kindergarten. I think that there's just always been a very classic natural disruptor in me. My mom said, actually, I thought this was great. She said, you know, you weren't you weren't obstinate. You weren't ugly about it. You weren't making things difficult for anyone. You were just simply going your own way. And I looked back and thought, oh, maybe it was because I was deaf for a while. Maybe I was in my own little world. But I think that all of us, we have a natural tendency of some sort. And I think some of us get a bit of juice and fired up when we are in contrast to something else, when we've got naysayers around us and we go, I'll show you. So I think a bit of me, that's what I was thinking about, I think, or that's what I was fueled by in the early days. I was really determined to say, I think that we can see here that people are spending three to five years in therapy. They're going on a weekly, biweekly basis. This is an expensive and a very long process. And are we getting any better or does everyone just tire out in the end and we kind of decide we've done it long enough that we feel healed and we kind of just accept our pathologies as what they are and, and we move on? Or is there something 
else that we can be doing here? And my argument was that I think that there is. Only we didn't know what we know, of course, to be true about the brain now. I mean, every time we find out something new, we have to look back over what we've built upon in the past and take a look at things and rearrange them. So I've said this before, but I think it's important in this particular episode to remind you that there was a time we did not talk about how we feel. It was just this thing we didn't do. And and so particularly in this country, but in lots of places, we just took people that were offside that didn't really fit the outliers. And we said, okay, if you're going to be really, really strange and, and pitch a fit of any sort or have something going on that doesn't suit us, you're going to go over there to this institution and, and the rest of us will stay here and play nice. And I think that the idea of coming up with ways to be able to look at pathologies and to be able to create something we now call a DSM-5, and it's a diagnostic tool, and we can say, well, if you've got these numbers of symptoms, we think that perhaps this is what you're doing. And that's great for pharmacology. The reality is that most of us have lots of these symptoms all the time, every day, a mix and match of all of the things that make us individuals. And sometimes those things are more extreme than others. The question is, are they debilitating? Are they causing harm to you? Are they causing harm in your life? Are you finding that you have less and less control over the things that are happening around you? These are big questions to ask, but they're important questions. And if that's the case, what we know to be true also is that if we go in and we zone in on those particular behaviors that we're not happy about, and we give them a lot of time and energy and focus, oftentimes we actually make those things worse. So this is where things get a little controversial. In the early days of neural network therapy, before it was called neural network therapy, we just looked at the idea that, hey, isn't it interesting that if somebody comes to talk to me, say, about their drinking, and they say, every single day at the end of the day, I come home and I drink a lot of drinks, and that's growing in number, and it's kind of how I sedate myself, and I put myself off to sleep, and I get up the next day, and I function, but this is what it looks like. So if I were to hammer that out day after day with somebody that's dealing with this What I would find as I went along is that we would become entrenched in the conversation about the addiction. This would become the point of what we're talking about. And if anything, it would flare up the behavior. So suddenly these drinks, if we took an inventory, they would grow in number or they would grow in frequency or somehow the person would be more bothered by them than they were before they came in. And there's a reason for this. So the brain does not know the difference between real or imagined. And if we've got this thing going over and over and over that we're talking about in our minds, whether we're actually physically doing it, or we're just talking about it, our body shoots out the exact same physiology. So we have that sort of reaction, that chemistry, and that's really what we're getting flooded with. That becomes the issue. So as we're talking about things in session, and we're reinforcing this conversation, we're actually reinforcing the very neural pathways that we want to rid ourselves of. And I would call that harmful. Now, how do we talk about things without talking about things? Well, I think that in psychology, what we've done is say, first of all, we've got to get chatting about these things. This is important. We have to get this out of us. And there is a relief factor that goes on when we finally say, hey, I have this problem. This is what I'm dealing with. To stay in the addiction vein, the 12 steps of AA are fantastic. I just want to see, are there another 12 after that? Can we move beyond the conversation of the addiction? Can we stop talking about the problem so we can get off of that system, that flooding of that exact same chemistry over and over again, and begin to create new neural pathways in the brain that lead to new emotional experiences? Are our emotional addictions what are driving us? And I would argue yes, and I think science is backing that up nicely. So this is also where the game of whack-a-mole comes into play. 
you can come in and say, okay, fine. I've dealt with the fact that I come home and I drink a bottle of wine every night at the end of the day. And so I'm no longer doing that. We managed to get through that. We use some self-discipline. Of course, that only lasts a short while. And then we all just run out of it and go back to where we were. But let's just say you've got a lot of self-discipline and you get a long ways with this whole thing. And that therapy provides a bit of an outlet to explore that. And you're able to really exercise this over time. Interestingly enough, the shame that you feel the next morning after a big binge, when you start to read over your texts and realize you might have been overly emotional or critical or had conversations you just wish you didn't have in general, or the feeling of anxiety that you have the next day when you realize all of your physiology is fighting to find balance again because of the alcohol itself, but you're actually just in that state of heightened, whoa, can I actually do this? Do I have a problem? So there's a lot of emotion that goes on in this little roller coaster. And we're just using the example of addiction, but it could be absolutely any subject matter. We could talk about this in terms of grief. We could talk about this with anger. Every emotion has its addictive potential. So here we are going for this ride of the emotional experience of what we think is connected to the addiction itself. But it turns out that there's just a physiology in place that we continue to crave. That becomes our fuel of the day talked a little bit about emotional addictions in past episodes, but let's just sort of keep with this idea of how this relates to a therapist. So as we move along through this process, we sort of find the groove in our record player that now just includes the therapist themselves. We get into this conversation. Did I do well? Did I not do well? Do I get a feather in my cap or a nice little star on my assignment? Because I managed to get through a week or a couple of weeks successfully doing this. And I would argue that at a point that becomes harmful. Not only are we reinforcing the neural pathways that we're trying to rid ourselves of, but the other part of this is that we actually will find ourselves with the very same emotional patterning popping up elsewhere. So perhaps we've dealt with the wine itself, but now we eat a bucket of ice cream every night at the end of the day, or we've thrown ourselves into workaholism and we actually end up feeling both anxious and uh, ashamed of the fact that we don't spend enough time with our families and we don't manage to put importance on anything else except whatever we're, we're driven to do in these projects. So what we want to do instead is actually zoom out and take a look and what is the physiology? What is happening here in the emotional roller coaster that is us? And how do we begin to make smarter choices to be able to shift that and make those changes in a meaningful way, but that weans us off of that emotional patterning and onto a healthier, happier variety? Now, this is a, a more difficult thing to do. This does require time. It requires acclimation. <laughs> so your body is not just going to go from where it is in perhaps a lower, denser, clunkier mood to something high vibing and feel good and stay there overnight. It's just not going to, it doesn't have the ability. It's sort of like getting to the top of the mountain without doing the climbing to be able to get there and, and sustain the views. So we want you to take special care in looking at how you develop this relationship with a therapist of some sort. There are all kinds of therapy. Neural network therapy is just one of many types of therapy, but I'm going to, of course, speak to the one I know. And obviously I'm biased. <laughs> I happen to think there's a lot in it. I like using humor and that's what uh, a lot of neural network therapy has some goofy stuff in it. So we know that if we have a giggle over something, it's just far more likely to stick. And for that reason, we've got a lot of these goofy exercises that we do that actually have the same effect that shorten the length of time you're going to spend in a therapeutic process. So this is the method behind the madness. But I think that there are a few ways in which we can look at where therapy is harmful. We'll talk about this first, and then we'll kind of move on to 
you know, the healing part. The harmful part will be, am I in a therapeutic relationship that mimics a relationship that I have that isn't that healthy in my real life? So am I going to somebody that maybe is quite harsh in the way that they speak to me? They're very critical. I kind of walk out feeling a bit battered and bruised, but I think, geez, it was like going to the gym and really pushing myself so I'm feeling better. I would argue that there's more harm than healing in that case. I don't think that we require a, a beating to be able to pull ourselves up and out of things. And I don't think we also require to mimic those relationships that we have, although sometimes that does happen. Are we in a relationship with a therapist that feels rewarding in the vast majority of the sessions? So what I mean by that is I don't think that you should go skipping out of therapy each and every time. That would sort of see, seem silly. If you're going to hit some sore spots, if you're going to find some things that maybe you hadn't you know, thought of before, there's going to be lots of great stuff that happens if you're having lots of tears or lots of frustrations or even just walking out and going, I don't want to do this anymore. And then realizing, wow, yeah, okay, I see what's happened here. So I think that though overall, the feeling should be good. You should feel like I'm getting somewhere. That feeling of relief that we've talked about things, but now I have something to do about them and we'll get more into this is the feeling that we're looking for. Am I making sense that I want to go back and do this again? And if that is drawing you back to the circumstance, then I think that you're moving from harmful to healing. The other part of this for sure is, am I strong in each and every building block of what's going on here and strong enough to know that I can trust myself to pick the right person to work with? And what I mean by that is certainly you should find somebody qualified, somebody trained, somebody who's got experience in this. There are lots of those simple things, but you know all that, that I don't need to, to say those things for them to be true. But if you imagine that you were to fall off a boat, say, and you're reaching and reaching to be able to get back up onto that boat. Are you looking for the person that has expertise in search and rescue? Or are you looking for the closest hand? So sometimes I think trying to sort out exactly who would be the right person is a bit foolish. I mean, you can find the most qualified person in the world, but if they're not the one closest to you, and what I mean by that is, we can change up our therapist, first of all, lots and lots. I think growth is a lifelong process. The person that might have been right for me as a therapist 10 years ago would not be the same person that would make sense to me now. I've grown. I've changed. The person with their hand out closest to me that might be really functional for me, getting me out of the water into that boat, is somebody that's going to be within reach. So I'm going to have to trust myself to know that what I need is going to be there for me. I'm going to have that person within reach. I don't need to go and do something super special here to find somebody that is, you know, whatever it might be and setting my sights so high that I, in fact, don't reach my own hand up to get up and into that boat. So I think that's important. I think we can sabotage ourselves by trying to spend a lot of time in that research process. And I'd rather see you get into the boat first and foremost, and perhaps from there, make a decision to move on to somebody else. I think that we need to trust ourselves in a session. Now, if we're feeling disastrous when we start therapy, which oftentimes we wait until we do, part of what can happen is that we come into a session really ripe with expectation about who this person will be and what we're going to get out of it and how it's all going to go. I know that I've done that myself, so I would expect that that's a pretty common practice. So I might book two sessions with any therapist that you're trying out, just so that you can have the first one that's a bit of a mishmash of you trying to get a whole bunch of things out, but also still evaluate what it is that's happening in that dynamic and how you feel. But I mean, in the first 15 minutes of that session, if you just know, nope, 
this is not the person I don't like the way that they explain things. I don't feel heard in the session. I find the person's voice grating. <laughs> They're using all those counseling terms I can't stand. Whatever it might be, it doesn't really matter. Then, of course, don't bother with the second session. Finish the first one. Squeeze everything you can out of it. It's really important that you just get on your own team here. Get everything you can out of every person that you meet with. But it's okay to say, I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to keep trying and keep trying someone else. I know a lot of therapists find it difficult when... Clients are shopping for therapists, but I really encourage it. I think it's important to be able to find somebody that feels like your next right logical step. And I think you need to do that by trusting what's happening for you on the inside. Um, the other thing I would say is that in finding a therapist that feels like they have a doing approach or something to offer in each and every session. So in neural network therapy, it's easy to shop around for therapists here because if you have one session and you decide, oh, I don't know, okay, maybe I'll try a different one. You know, we happen to be biased and love the people that are working in our team, but that doesn't mean that they're a perfect fit for you. I always give the example that one of my best therapists is very gentle in her approach. She's got a very, very quiet wisdom, but she's so good. But because I'm a talker and I'm out there and I've got a lot to say and do and ah, it's intense. I need to have somebody that's going to go, hey, hey, hold on a second. <laughs> I'm going to interject here. So I don't want to run right over top of this particular therapist. So I'm going to have to find somebody that's louder and stronger and kind of more assertive in that way. Nothing to do with skill level in terms of what they have to offer, because I think that both therapists would have everything that I need. But in the delivery itself, is there going to be a better match for my personality? So... When we reinforce these neural pathways that are unwanted, oftentimes that means we're in a talk therapy process. And talk therapy, again, was fantastic when we had nothing else. We weren't talking about anything. So talking was really important. And for sure, we can have revelations when we talk about things and we can have that great juicy moment where we think, wow, that is life-changing. What happens is the integration part, and this is where it gets really interesting with science. So we know that if we walk out with simply that mental revelation, but not a doing piece to it, that the likelihood of that particular revelation surviving any integration, as in any shift in our change of what's happening with the neural pathways in our brain, it's pretty minimal. If anything, it's just sort of a nice conversation. So we're saying to people, you can talk to your friends for free. There are helplines as well you can call to be able to talk to if you don't feel that anybody in your universe is specifically or particularly helpful to have conversations with. If you're looking to do therapy, I would encourage you to find what is it that this person has to offer. And this is where I think moving from a process that could be more harmful, as in I'm regurgitating the very same emotional experience over and over again. My brain doesn't know the difference. I'm now reinforcing the neural pathways that were actually intended to be able to keep me in that extended holding pattern of behavior or thought that I do not want. So I'm anxious. I continue to talk about my anxiety. Now I've ramped up my anxiety and I've reinforced the neural pathways. Same for anger management, same for addiction. The whole thing goes over and over and over. Or am I in a place that says I can talk about this enough for the therapist to make sure that they've got a good grasp on what I'm talking about? They understand me. I feel like I'm heard. I feel like, okay, hold on a second. This person hasn't come home into my life, but they get it. They, they got a sampling of this. And now they're giving me something to do about it. So each session, you come in, every single session has a lesson to it. So you're going to leave with something you didn't have coming in period. That's the job of the therapist. That's how they do what they do here. But I would argue that that would be important for you to do any place that you go. 
And so here, if you do your first session and you decide, no, I want to try a different one, you just move on to the next material. So every single session, you're building up these skills, you're building up a new way to be able to approach your thinking. We are shifting the neural pathways in your brain. You are changing your physiology in each and every session. In any type of therapy, I would argue that you need this doing approach. You need something to move you out of the experience. And that could be a lot of things. It might just be a written exercise. Maybe it's a phone conversation that you're going to have. But where's the takeaway? Look for the takeaway. Ask about the takeaway ahead of time. Read up the websites. Figure out if you can glean from them whether or not you're moving into a therapeutic model that is going to meet your needs. Trust your gut. Trust that great part of you that is saying, hold on, this is the hand reaching out that is closest to me that feels like they could really help me and let that be the decision. Just that. From the time that you get into the boat, pull out a book, get out, get out your laptop and start looking for the next therapist, but get into the boat and look to see whether or not when you leave each session, there's a sense of growth. There's a sense of something that tells you who moving this is tingling this is something I can feel this stirring about me there's that whole saying you know when the student is ready the teacher will appear and I think that that's true for therapy I hope that helps some until next time if you like what you've heard on today's podcast and want to learn more about our counseling and education services visit our website at canadianfamilyhealth.ca because health and happiness begin with you